Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen and amen. Psalm 89 verse 52 closes with those sentiments and how notable and how worthy they always are. Indeed, tonight as we come together, we certainly remember many who are unable to be with us due to illness or other matters. But each of us have been so blessed with the opportunity and we're thankful. The songs, the prayer, the fellowship we had prior to the service in its beginning all have been encouraging, helping each of us, I'm sure, to get started on a week in which we could be more noble and more powerful servants to our loving God in heaven. Hasn't He been so good to us? As you probably would have easily surmised, our series of lessons tonight continues on that study of the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, as you'll notice, not only in the lesson reading from just a moment ago, but in some of these introductory remarks, we have already covered roughly half the material for which our youngsters will be tested. They'll be covering the first 24 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, and we tonight will cover chapters 12 and 13 in that book. So many interesting records, so many powerful ideas from the days of the long past, all pointing us to steal the truth that God is in control. And as He oversaw the matters concerning Israel, what lessons are found in these lovely verses still for us even to today. Very quickly, we've noted from the outset of the book the initial record of Eli, his wicked sons. We've seen from the birth of Samuel onward and what a noble servant to God that he was. We did learn, however, that the entire children of Israel made a great colossal folly in chapter 4 by taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Not only did they lose the battle, but the Ark was captured. Eli died that day, and so did his sons. We did learn, though, that after some seven months' period of time when the Ark was in Philistine territory and things did not go well for them, that they did allow the Ark to be returned. As it did so... God's people requested a king. They weren't satisfied with God's leadership as it had been. They sought for a king and God in fact heard their petition and set before them in chapter 8 the thought that they had rejected him. In chapters 9, 10, and 11 we find God selecting Saul to be that first king of Israel. And ultimately after Saul in fact saved Jabesh Gilead, we find the people also were well in mind to accept him as their king. With those events, chapter 11 closed, and that brings us to the study of the evening. We do notice as we take up the story in chapters 12 and 13 this evening that perhaps it would be entirely worthwhile to look at a quick map. The whole region in which the setting of 1 Samuel takes place is not a very large region by a number of miles north and south. As you can see on that map, you'll notice the Dead Sea there, that different colored about the middle part of the bottom. That darker area is by and large just a portion of which all of these cities that we're reading are located. Gilgal, Ramah, Bethel, Bethshemesh, all of them. As you can see, the Philistine territory is off to the bottom left as you look at that map. And there are those notable Philistine cities that also were a great thorn in the side of Israel for many years to come. Cities such as Ekron and Ashdod and Gaza and a few others. All the while, it points to us again the interesting fact that this little region that is on the whole so small nonetheless is basically the historical setting for entirety of the Old Testament and also for much of the New. Isn't it amazing how that our God has transformed the world with the birth of one in this very territory, Jesus of Nazareth? 
as you can also imagine, a blow-up of at least one little portion of that map. This is again a much larger image of one smaller section. You'll notice in it cities such as Ekron, Ashdod, and Gath. Those are three of the most notable Philistine cities. But off to their, uh, off to what would be your right, but off to the east, is Kirjath-Jerim, Jerusalem, and Bethshemesh. And so far, we have already learned a great deal about all three of them. In particular, we notice that when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Israelite territory, it was to Bethshemesh that it came. And it was there that they foolishly looked into it, and many of them died. We also remember Kerjath-Jerim was where that Ark came after it left the place of Bethshemesh. And there, of course, it was to remain twenty long years Years in which Jerusalem, as you can see, wasn't that far away, and it would be to there that David would eventually bring it when we arrive at chapters much later in our story. As you can give, give thought then to this record of the journey of the ark, may we, as we have done in the past, look at some of the features historically and textually in chapters 12 and 13 and then see if we can't take some lessons from them that can be of great assistance and great encouragement to us. As chapter number 11 closed, we noticed that Saul had been selected and declared by both God and the people as their first king, the king of the united Israel. As Saul did that and occupied that position almost immediately, Samuel takes center stage as he makes a public speech, a declaration if you please. And in that declaration... He, in fact, makes a statement of his own character and his own level of integrity to them. In fact, he asks them some leading questions. In what way have you ever seen me defraud or deceive anybody? In what way have I ever been guilty of taking a bribe? In what way have I ever been the one at hand to purposefully lead astray from the commandments of the Lord? And the people were quick to say to Samuel, "'Never have we seen thee do any of these things.'" In fact, Samuel was even quick to say, both God and this new king that you have selected serves as witness to that fact. He did admit that his sons had failed, but he still held out the degree of his integrity, the degree of his character, and the degree of his piousness in that regard. Immediately following that, we notice Samuel continued to say many things to them once he had garnered their attention. I would invite you to notice carefully two of the verses. Listen to the sternness with which Samuel addressed the people on that occasion. After noting to them that God had been so good to them, He had led them out of Egypt. He had led them through the wandering in the wilderness. All the time, say in the books of Joshua and Judges, when they had been oppressed and afflicted by others, God sent them deliverers, and He even named some of them by name. Individuals like Gideon, like Samuel, like Deborah and others. And all the while, as they had pointed, were pointed out those facts, Samuel was again quick to say, But you, despite all the help from God, have requested a king. You, despite all the favor and blessings that God has extended to you, have nonetheless rejected Him and have in fact requested and demanded a king. At that point, that brings us to verse 13. I'd invite you to read with me verses 13, 14, and 15. 
For it says, Now therefore behold the king whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. God through Samuel wished them to appreciate with majesty this important thought, that just because you have now selected a king and just because God has granted it, does not give you license to ignore His commandments, doesn't give you license to, in fact, do otherwise than what God has commanded. Both you and this king that you have now selected still must continually and fully obey the commandments of the Lord. The king that they had, you see, was not the license that perhaps they wanted. It doesn't matter what kind of president, king, or parliamentarian is over one. It doesn't release one from the character of the needfulness to obey God's commands. We find in the verses that follow, Samuel continued as he reminded them in verses 16 and following about the power that came that day as one final reminder of the nature of the God of heaven whom they served. It was the time of wheat harvest and God brought thunder and rain that day, a rather unusual event. And as it came, it was God's stamp of approval that He was in control of all those matters. And that included, of course, the demand that the people serve Him with humility and with a great sense of appreciation and love. In verses 20 and following, Samuel addressed the people again. I would invite you to notice the urgency in Samuel's voice the care and the remarkable features of the things he had to say to them. Samuel said unto the people, Fear not. Ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake His people, for His great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things He hath done for you. Isn't that a touching set of ideas and presentations? Serve Him with all your heart, Keep in mind what good things He has done for you. And one final thought, Samuel said, I will not be guilty of sin in ceasing to pray for you. Does that perhaps highlight one interesting thought? Are you and I guilty of sin when we fail to pray as we should? On this occasion, Samuel said, Far be it from me that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. Samuel knew that the people needed his prayers and he knew they needed the guidance of the Lord and he knew they needed a heart receptive to what the God of heaven had revealed. But could any of us say we still do not need those things? Could any of us in earnestness and in honesty say I don't need those things either? Surely we all need the same things for which Samuel was to pray for them. With that, the curtain closes on chapter number 12 and opens before us the 13th chapter of 1 Samuel. 
we notice here, we are immediately introduced to Saul in one aspect of his leadership and in his reign. And we also learn, first and foremost, about a son of his named Jonathan. As we give thought to the character of both Jonathan and of Saul, we learn that Saul gathered together a group, a set of troops, if you please, militarily. Some 1,000 of them were under the control of Jonathan, stationed at Gibeah. 2,000 were under Saul's control, stationed at Michmash. We notice that Jonathan made the decision to, in fact, engage the Philistines in battle, and a skirmish erupted. We notice that as it did so, the Philistines were greatly perturbed and bothered by this, and so they began to amass a large host of military matters. The text quickly informs us. If you'll notice in verses 3, 4, and 5, 30,000 Philistine chariots. It goes on to mention 6,000 Philistine horsemen. All were on the border at Michmash ready to engage Israel in battle. Needless to say, Israel was not quite prepared for a battle of that size. The people were terribly afraid. The text says they trembled. Some of them hid in caves, some of them hid in pits, some of them hid in the rocks, some of them even fled Canaan altogether, crossed the Jordan River, and began to live over in the area of Gibeah. The people were very frightened. We notice in verses 6, 7, and 8 that that fear, in fact, prompted Saul to do something very unwise. He had been told by Samuel to tarry seven days at Gilgal and wait for him. Saul came to Gilgal in such a dutiful fashion, and there he was ready for Samuel to come. After all, with the Philistines here waiting, just in view, with a great deal of military engagement about to take place, Saul was obviously concerned. The people were worried and bothered as well. Saul had the idea that he wanted to beseech the blessings of God by way of offering before entering into battle. However, Samuel hadn't come. He delayed in his coming for whatever reason. Finally, Saul took it upon himself to offer the peace offerings and the burnt offerings. We notice that immediately as he finished that, Samuel came. And Samuel had a very notable question. What hast thou done? Samuel began to then hear from the words of Saul what had taken place. The battle is about to take place. The military armament is ready. I wanted to ask the beseechings of God on us before we entered battle, but you had not come. And so I forced myself to make the offering. It is in that context that the lesson text that was read a few moments ago should now be reread by each of us. After what Saul had done, and keep in mind, it seems as if his motives were fair. He wished to ask God's blessings upon this battle against the Philistines, but Samuel, the one who rightfully should offer it, had not arrived. This is what Samuel had to say to him. Verse 13 of 1 Samuel 13, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. 
perhaps much to his surprise and perhaps much to his chagrin, Samuel face to face told him, You have not obeyed the voice of the Lord thy God. You have acted foolishly, Saul. You have not kept the commandment of God. In fact, the punishment that was meted out by the greatness of God on that occasion was this. God would have established your kingdom forever. You would have been a continuing dynasty as a leader over this people of Israel. But yet, because of this failure upon your part, the kingdom has been taken from you. For God has sought for a man better than you are, sought for one that has a heart after his own desire. And with that, it is a downhill spiral from now to the end of Saul's life. Although it will not be till chapter 31 that we see his death, it is a very sad saga between now till then. So many wrong turns, so many bad choices, so many foolish escapades, so many sorry episodes. That will be the lot of the remainder of Saul's life. It is for now, I might ask you to notice that in verses 17 and following, after this terrible news from Samuel, we notice the Philistines did prepare for battle. They made a three-pronged attack on Israel, once through Zeboam, once through Beth Horon, once through the city of Orpha. And as we read in the next chapter, which we'll take up next, next Sunday evening, we'll find many things about that battle. For now, one of the things that does sound rather negative is this. Beginning in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 13, we learn that there's no smiths in Israel. They were all in Philistine territory. None of them in Israel knew how to sharpen things and to take metal and mold it and do the things with it that a smith would do. Oh, you see, the Philistines had not permitted Israel that kind of talent, that kind of skill in the continuing way of doing that. We'll only wonder then what will help Israel out come chapter 14. We'll save that until the next time as we take up that chapter and the one that follows. For now, in light of the historical record of these, what might be some lessons that you and I can take to heart and use to assist us in appreciating the thought of chapters 12 and 13 in 1 Samuel and use them even till this day to help us be the rightful, faithful, steadfast servants to the God of heaven. It seems entirely fair to start with this statement. No salvation is to be found in men. We notice that the children of Israel begged for a king. In fact, in chapter 8, verses 5, 6, and 20, they said that we may be like the nations. We want a king that may go in and out and fight our battles. We want a king that, in fact, can judge us. We want a king, you see, that, in effect, can take care of us and provide us deliverance and salvation. Samuel, in the very passage we've read this evening, reminded them of something else. This king that you've wished for, it's not he that can provide salvation. You, as well as he, are still subject to the commandments of the Lord. And if you fail to do that, then you will reap wrath and great harm from him. But if you will follow him in faithfulness, oh, what a blessing. And oh, what goodness you shall have from his hand. Some of the thoughts on that slide lead us to appreciate that. Some of those passages, in fact, from Psalm 118, verse number 8. It is not good to put faith in princes. In Psalm 146, verse 3, Put not thy trust and confidence in man, nor in the Son of man, in whom is no help. 
David, that great psalmist on that occasion, very pointedly said, There is no help to be found in the ultimate sense in man. That certainly is not to say that friends can't be encouraging and edifying. And we know that in the church we're commanded to be so. 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. But we know that from the final character of salvation from sin, men cannot offer it. They may wish they could, and some of them may think they can. But isn't it still a true statement that our propitiation was the Son of God Himself, 1 John 4 verse 10, and only in Him do we find words described like these, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4 verse 12. Jesus, did He not also say, In John 12, verse 32, And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It is Jesus that has the name of salvation. It's He that has the power of forgiveness of sin through the greatness and the gift of His blood. The sacrifice that He made for you and for me, and yea, for all humanity. As you can see in verses such as these, in Ephesians 5, verse 23, It is on that occasion stated that He, speaking of Christ, is the Savior of the body. If the body then is going to be saved at all, who is it that will save it? It's not a man. It's the Christ. He is the Savior of the body. In Colossians 1 verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. That word preeminence reminds us of that which is of highest rank, that which is of first priority. And so it is, Christ has that rank and that position. Isn't it amazing that we see hints about this thought in the days of 1 Samuel? Here was a people who begged for a king and they got their wish. My strong suspicion is many times they regretted it. Hosea 13.11 still says, God speaking, I gave them a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. Many times those kings did things that were ungodly. Many times they failed to give heed to the words of the wisdom of God and the very punishment meted out here as stated by Samuel came upon them. No salvation to be found in men. Salvation to be found in the Son of God and the marvelous wonder of the message He has revealed. As you can see, perhaps in one final thought, Revelation 1 verse 5. It is He, you see, this Jesus, the Son of God. It is on that occasion said of Him that He has washed us from our sins in His own blood. He's the one then that can forgive sin. He's the one that can save. Aren't we thankful to have a King as marvelous and as good as He Perhaps we should give thought to another lesson, though, as well. Not only is salvation not to be found in men, it's also true that we learn something mightily on this occasion about service to God. Although we highlighted it a moment ago, let's revisit some of the detailed intensity. You can imagine it. Michmash was a geographical region in which it would have been easy to see the Philistine troops. It's not as if they were several dozen miles away, far away in a ravine. Saul knew very well where the troops were and they were in sight. You can imagine her heart racing. He and the people were trembling in great fear. Look at the massiveness of the troops. 30,000? 
not to mention all the chariots and the other kinds of weaponry at their disposal, and they could come upon us and attack at any moment. Saul was just waiting for Samuel to come. I need this sacrifice offered. Where is he? And he kindly made the statement, then I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Did you notice his language? I didn't really want to, but I forced myself to offer that burnt offering. We read just a moment ago what Samuel's reply was. Thou hast done foolishly. There would be so many today well on the side of Saul. What did he do wrong? He was only trying to make proper preparation for battle. He was only attempting to beseech the blessing in favor of God as battle with the Philistines ensued. He was only attempting to, in fact, make certain that the ways and things of God were strongly a part of his and the people's mentality. What did he do wrong? This is what he did wrong. Who was authorized to offer burnt offerings? Keeping in mind that Saul was of the lineage of Benjamin. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. And was it not the tribe of Levi that were authorized to serve as priests? Authorized to serve as those who would officiate at the various offerings as we've studied in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7? Indeed, that was the case. Saul makes this thought, I forced myself. That's nonsense. You simply sinned and disobeyed by doing what the authority of God did not authorize you to do. And today, legions still fall in that same predicament. Multitudes are still in the valley of decision, to quote Joel 3.14, in light of that same problem. What about the heart of mankind today? How many are, quote, forcing themselves to do what really is pleasing to them, not what God has commanded We've noted historically about the scene of events in the state of Kentucky in the 1840s and 1850s. It was well noted in the church at Midway, the singing was atrocious. It was terrible. No one will make any defense or argument against that fact, but the preacher, whose name was L.L. Pinkerton, decided he would introduce a melodeon to accompany those who, as they sang and thus improve it. What authority did Dr. Pinkerton have? No biblical authority. He may, just like Saul, have forced himself to try and help the singing. He disobeyed the commandments of the Lord. Doesn't matter what else he may have thought he did. He had no authority to accompany music to that singing with a mechanical instrument of music. God had already affirmed well in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 what music he wanted. That should have been enough. Just as surely as he had told Israel... Who was to offer the sacrifices? And to Saul, that should have been enough. He should have waited for Samuel. Service to God, you see, is not on our terms. It wasn't up to Saul just to do it because he felt like the intensity of the moment demanded it. You'll notice some of these other verses along that same line that present to us a host of other challenges in light of these thoughts. Could not one have made the same kind of statements of argument when it come to Uzzah? As the ark was being moved along that card and he simply steadied it with his hand, hoping perhaps not to damage it. Nonetheless, he lost his life. God hadn't authorized him to touch the ark. He was not, you see, of the right tribe nor of the right family. 
Can we not appreciate from those examples that today our God wishes us to serve Him as He has dictated, not as we would prefer? As I mentioned ago, a moment ago though, throughout the decades and centuries, that has been one of the most common problems. Men wanting to do things their way instead of God's way. When we stand before Him in judgment, it will be a sad matter indeed to then hear Him say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And that will be the very words echoed from Matthew 7 verse 23. It is with all those things in mind. We come perhaps to one final lesson this evening. As we've learned about the matter of service so far, this would be a perfect time to at least reconsider the matter of the cost of Saul's sin. Think again what the blessing would have been for Saul. I would ask you to note the language one more time as used by Samuel in chapter 13. It says in the closing words of verse number 13, For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. There is every word to be included in that and every conclusion that. Saul could have stood at the head of an entire dynasty, an entire lineage of kings over Israel. We do remember later that there were several who followed in linear succession along a way like that. But here it could have begun with Saul, but it didn't. Because the very next verse says, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Saul, what could have been, will now not be. Your sin has marked you unfit to serve as king over God's people. Your presumptuousness, your foolishness, your personal preference, your choice to do things apart from the command of God have rendered you unfit to serve as king for you, you see. Do not occupy the position of serving in God's commandments. Some may think that punishment was too harsh. Why not give him a second chance, some would say. God, aren't you being a little bit too strict in this? And yet we recognize that in all instances and in all ways, the God of the earth will always do what's right. Abraham said so, didn't he, in Genesis 18.25. Here we notice this punishment that was set forth removed Saul because God knew what kind of heart that he had, knew what kind of leader he would be, and knew the kind of difficulties and presumptuousness that would be descriptive of his reign. No doubt you're already aware that there will be more problems in Saul's life. We shall be, see some of them beginning even the next lesson. Other things, not just the sin mentioned here, but other matters that also were greatly apart from the truth that God had revealed. In any sense, can we not in this see the following? God desired a man after his own heart. In chapter 16, that man will be found. And he will be anointed the second king of Israel. You and I know him well, just a young shepherd boy at the time we learn of him first. But oh, what a great impact he had on much of the rest of the Old Testament. And even Jesus of Nazareth is said more than once to be of the very lineage and loins of this very one who we shall soon study. The man after God's own heart challenges us to ask that of ourselves. What about your heart and mine tonight? Are you a person after God's own heart? Am I a person after God's own heart? Or like Saul, am I presumptuous, headstrong, rebellious, 
and determined to do things my way despite the fact it's not God's commandment. If that latter circumstance is the description of my life, how regretful and sorry it shall be for me, and also how sorrowful it shall be for you. Service to God, you see, comes at a high price if we disobey. We see that even in our day, that price of disobedience is even higher than it was then. To lose the kingdom is one thing. To lose one's soul in a devil's hell forevermore is something else. What shall it be like to stand on that day of judgment and hear Him say, You have been judged unfit. You have taken the talents and abilities that I bequeathed to you and you've wasted them. You have not been a dutiful servant of mine. You have rebelled against the greatness of my son's sacrifice and forevermore you're out of my kingdom. Into a place of outer darkness you must now go. Into a place that is truly prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Into a place where you shall never again be with the greatness of my presence and that of all that's righteous and godly. It would be impossible, it seems to me at this point, to describe how utterly awful that will be. And yet, many are going to hear something very much like it. May you and I in wisdom not be amongst that number, but may we appreciate the cost of sin is high. It is not a trivial matter, and it's not a game. Sin is deadly serious. That's one of Brother James Watkins' most powerful presentations, isn't it? Sin is deadly serious. Tonight, as this lesson draws to its conclusion, we have seen some of the thoughts I've tried to highlight on this slide. We have marched two chapters further in this book of 1 Samuel. Along the line, we have seen many more things about Saul and his integrity that he asked of the people. And then we've now seen Saul take center stage. This one who was so handsome acted so foolishly. We've seen that he did what he was not authorized to do, and in so doing, the kingdom was rent from him. Never again would he occupy that position that he desired to have. Tonight, what about your position and mine? These lessons are the ones we've hinted at. No salvation in men. The critical nature of service to God must always be dictated by His declarations. And finally, the cost of sin is far too steep to tamper with it. Tonight... If you are not a member of the body of Christ, if you're one who still is engaged in living in sin, don't remain in that condition. Jesus died to pull you out of the fires of that hell. We're told in Jude verses 20 and 21 to come out of those fires. Don't remain in them. The plan of salvation is as straightforward as this. Hear the word that God has set forth. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His matchless name as a Son of God and be baptized. If you have done that and you have begun to walk with the Lord and have known the fullness of all the blessings that have come with it, but gradually, perhaps almost imperceptibly slowly, you have slept aside, you've begun to trust in men, your service has become less than earnest, and you have forgotten the cost of sin. Come back to your first love tonight. Let us pray in a public way for you if your sins have been of a public character. If we could be of any assistance to anyone this very night, Brother Eddie has chosen a song of encouragement. And we would only invite you to come even now if we can help you while together we stand and while we sing.